Hi, this is Marissa Meyer. And this is Delaney. And this is Sloan. And you're listening to the Prince Kai Fan Pod. Welcome to another episode of the Prince Kai Fan Pod, a Marissa Meyer book club podcast where Captain is King, Marissa is Queen, and I am your host, Bethany Fingered. This episode is brought to you by Rampy and Crew patron supporters. Thank you. Please welcome back Cassie from Of Slippers and Spindles podcast. Hello, friends. So you and I just spent an hour and ten minutes talking before we hit record, so I feel like we can jump right into what are you currently reading. Yeah, hopefully we've gotten all of that out of our system. It was like it was like work venting, boring librarian talk, Yeah, not of interest to most people, and stuff I wouldn't want like out in the world either because I was kind of like... Venting some administrative frustration and like maybe that shouldn't there shouldn't be a hard record of that in the True world. True story. Um, but yeah, so uh, what am I reading? I'm I'm between books right now. I've I've got I was on a point. I think I talked about this last time I was on, where like I was having trouble reading books because I was having trouble focusing on them, and that has continued to be true. So I've been rereading a lot of things, or I've mm-hmm. been reading like. Stuff that I do not have to worry about getting invested in. Like, I got The Sun and the Star, which is Rick Riordan's new book. And it's been sitting on my coffee table because I desperately want to read it. But I'm also already so invested in those characters that I'm, like, afraid to start reading it. Because I'm afraid I'm not going to, like, have the focus for it. Mm. So instead, I've been reading um, some new release adult rom-com anonymous pen pal books which i love like don't get me wrong and they're great because like i don't have to fully engage my brain when i read them um they can just be like fun i'm just reading so that i'm reading yeah and so i I just finished one called dear henry love edith that was really cute it was thoroughly unbelievable from start to finish like there's no way this scenario would actually play out in real life but i don't care i loved it it was somehow simultaneously anonymous pen pals and fake dating, which was phenomenal. I love that. And I also finished one called Ghosting, which is also anonymous pen pals. And I think I'm going to try, like I set myself a tentative goal last month to see if I can get through my fairy tale shelf this year and read all Whoa. the books on my fairy well not all the books on my fairy tale shelf but all the books on my fairy tale shelf that I haven't read before because I've got 29 fairy tale retellings that I own <laughs> that I haven't read and I feel like 29 is a reasonable number to aim to get through by the end of the year that is fair I feel like that's achievable yeah I could see that I don't even so, want to know how many are in my fairy tale collection. <laughs> it's it's like four shelves, so it's a lot. So yeah, I'm hoping to start that. So I just finished the one book like two days ago, and I haven't started another thing yet. But I think I'm going to start that fairy tale project. In which case, I will be reading Red Hood by Alana Arnold. Ooh, it's exciting. Yeah. How about you? What are you reading? I am currently obsessed with adult rom-com witch books i read what the hex by um no i read go hex yourself by jessica claire 
and I have been on a rabbit hole. So I went from Go Hex Yourself to The Kiss Curse to What the Hex to What You Gonna Do. I have like four books downloaded on Libby that I'm like about to start as soon as I finish those. Uh, I don't know why I'm obsessed with them, but that like I read the one and I was like, yes, this is my life now. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I love it. And then I just got a copy from Edelweiss of um, My Roommate is a Vampire by Jenna Levine. And it's from, it's going to come out in um, August of this year. But it's it's very interesting premise because like they're roommates. I'm only a few chapters in, but they're roommates. But because, you know, he's a, a night person and she's a day person, they only communicate via, like, messages that they write for each other on the kitchen table. Oh, my gosh. That is Dear Henry Love Edith. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, it, I love it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's a situation where she's staying in town for a summer to work at a nursery. And she's introduced to him as a widow a a widow who retired from being a nurse so he thinks that she's like this 80 year old woman and she's introduced to him as her contacts um grumpy uncle who just had knee surgery so she's picturing him as this old man (laughs) but in reality they're both in like their early 30s and because she's she's working nights and he has to get up early in the morning for physical therapy every day they never actually cross paths with one another, so they're just leaving notes on the kitchen counter, which is what I said. Like, it's completely unbelievable, like, that it would be two weeks and they wouldn't actually take the time to meet each other in the house. Because, of course, they're meeting around town and they're, like, attracted right, to each other. Right. But they're also meeting around town and, like, not learning the other person's name. Oh, I love it. But yeah, they have, like, one, five they, meetings. They kind so. of know each other because, like, they met in the beginning when she moved in, they met like once or twice when she moved in. Um, and it's, it's just really funny that now the only way they communicate is these cute little notes and he's a vampire. So his notes are all like, by the way, her last name is um, Greenberg. I don't know if you know that, but that's I um, don't, kind of, I don't. it's kind of close to your name. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's close to my last name. Yeah. And her first name is Cassie. <laughs> oh, okay. That so, would be very, like, disorienting trade so you whenever she talks i'm like oh right that's not my friend but you guys you both have blonde hair and she's like an art teacher who works as a librarian but art is her passion and i'm like okay well cassie's passion is theater but she works as a librarian yeah okay i see the similarities (laughs) i see the similarities i would never get involved with a vampire though because i don't do vampires she doesn't know he's a vampire yet. Oh, but... see, that would... Mm. <laughs> see, like, this sounds like a great book that I would love to read, except that it's got a vampire in it, and I have an irrational fear of vampires. Like, oh, that's I fair. Just, that's not an irrational fear. They suck people's blood. Like, right, that's exactly. That's what I'm saying. Fear. It's only irrational because they don't exist. Um, <laughs> but it's the concept. It's the concept <laughs> I don't know, and that terrifies me all the time. But it is really good so far, and I'm I'm vibing with it because for some reason I'm just obsessed with this whole, like, basically all the millennials who loved romance and fantasy grew up, and now they want those characters to not be teenagers, so they just kept it. They're still writing, like, romance fantasy, but they're, like, adults now. Yeah, basically. But I'm, like, I'm kind of excited about it. There is, like, adult content, which I've never been good with. Like, for some reason, I always find it cringy. Even though, like, I'm an adult and I'm married and stuff. Um, So I do, like, skip those chapters. But 
yeah, still still very likable. I'm enjoying them a great deal. Okay. Good to know. So maybe you'll read the vampire one, but if you get in the mood for like fantasy that is grown up, they are really fun and I like them. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. And if you want to know what they are, you or listeners, you can just, I keep track of everything on Goodreads because I get really proud of myself when I get to click that I'm done with a book, which Uh I know is kind of, that's kind of silly, but we do what makes us happy. So (laughs) absolutely. Don't let anybody tell you how to read. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about this beautiful fan art that we have. This is beautiful fan art. (laughs) I love this fan art. I couldn't help myself. I actually, I know that, like, we're not doing a lot of Scarlet and Wolf stuff um, here lately, just in general. But I could not help myself when I saw this art. It was sent to me by Court Makes underscore Art. And it's Wolf and Scarlet when they got reunited, and she was stinky, and she's like, how did you know I was here? And he's like, because I smelled you, girl. Like, (laughs) I love this art. I love the way they're looking at each other. I love the fact that she included Have You Seen My Son in the background on the wall. Oh, yeah. That detail was phenomenal. Such beautiful detail. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you can just just see his tattoo Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on his arm. Like, the detail in this is incredible. Yeah. This is this is a great moment. Like their reuniting is a wonderful moment even though it's not in these chapters. I don't care. Because we do get a beautiful Wolf and Scarlet moment of we do. reuniting we do. in the chapters that we're reading. It's not this one, but it's also another beautiful moment. Yeah. And and I ugh, I just I don't I was such a Cresswell person until and I still am, but like doing this podcast I am wolflet until the cows come home. Like, I (laughs) love their relationship so much. I love how much they, like, openly, unconditionally love and accept everything about each other, even the stuff that's, like, really suspicious that should have been a red flag for certain characters. Um, Even the stuff where, like, now if I met a girl, I'd be like, you should be careful. Like, (laughs) but I just love their relationship so much. And so, like, everything that happens between them, I'm just, I'm, like, giddy. Yeah, valid. Yeah. So the next fan art is from Dude Link on Instagram. And I really had to share it for the chapters that we're discussing today. We need a reminder of what. Lavana really looks like and what she portrays herself as looking like because we get the reveal in this chapter. Well, everyone gets the reveal in these mm-hmm. chapters of what she really looks like. Um, and the contrast I want to point out specifically is the skin tone is different. Yeah. Which I think is a big one for me. Like that was very noticeable when I looked at it. What do, what do you think of that? I like the, the difference in skin tone. Um, we're never one of the things that's fascinating to me about this this book series is that we're never really given a firm solid description of like what cinder looks like and a lot mm-hmm. of people will fan cast or draw her with asian features because she you know is from the commonwealth but i i sit there and i go okay except she's not actually from the Eastern Commonwealth, she's from the moon. Right. And so what that says to me is that like, this is taking place far enough in the future that a lot of these kind of racial distinctions and differences have kind of homogenized in a way so that she either has some Asian features or 
it's not at all out of place to see someone in the Eastern Commonwealth with no Asian features because it's never commented on. Like, it's never remarked upon. Right. Because of that, we don't really know that much about Lavana's physical appearance naturally. Outside of Beyond, the scars. About, outside of the scars and outside of the burns. Yeah. We don't really know about what her natural kind of skin tone is, what her natural kind of, like, racial ethnicity might be. And I think that that's really interesting. And so I like seeing that depicted here because we are told that the glamour she puts on, which is based off of, of soul, this, this woman is very, you know, pale and very striking with the skin against the hair and like that kind of stuff. So I think it's wonderful that somebody drawing this, like took into consideration, Hey, I'm going to do a different skin tone. I'm not going to default to a depiction of, of white necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I also like, to keep in mind, to keep perspective, that it's not that she was choosing a pale person to emulate because that is the highest beauty standard. She's choosing that person to emulate because of the relationship that that person had with her husband. Because we see her in other books, and Ferris specifically, like, put on all sorts of different faces. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember the one where she met Saul for the first time where she was like, they talked about her being like ebony skinned with a shaved head. And so I think that if there's one positive thing I can say about lunar society is that they're very open to all kinds of aesthetic beauty. They don't really have like one kind of beauty ideal standard that they're going for, if that makes sense. I think that makes perfect sense. And I think it's also... One of the things that I find interesting about the ethnicity of Cinder is because I've I've seen like quotes from Marissa saying she's Asian and to me that doesn't necessarily expand upon because there are different cultures in right the in, you know the continent of Asia is the largest one mm-hmm. in the, in the world so does that mean that you know she has an Indian predisposition or that she has you know some features from um, the Philippines or, or Indonesia or something, because they do have different physical characteristics. I like the concept that they've all been homogenized. I think that's a beautiful word choice, by the way. Um, Thank you. And, and I think that what is important about the moon being its own like culture and significance is because in my head canon, the moon was not founded by one country. It was multiple people from multiple countries who came together to create this colony and eventually they all sort of blended together because there's there's a finite number of people in that space people are going to fall in love people are going to procreate people are going to have arranged marriages maybe just to keep the population going i'm not sure how that all worked out maybe they would do it to to bring their colonies together I'm not entirely sure, but in my brain, they came from different backgrounds and eventually sort of blended into their own different cultures. And that's why they all have different physical features and characteristics. And some of them are kind of reflective of things that we might see on Earth and some of them aren't. But I think that something I would want to clarify or not clarify, but something I would notice in particular about this is that it's not that the skin tones are opposing, it's that everything is jarringly opposing the shape of her but like her cheekbones the shape of her ear 
her lips are fuller, like the bottom lip is fuller, and then her her or her upper lip is fuller than her natural appearance. Her nose is more pointed. The shape of her eyebrows and the arch that they that they have, um, her eyelashes, her hair, like not just the color but the texture, the type of curl versus the type of wave, like her her strong jaw that she has, like it's it's virtually everything about her appearance has been modified into what she believes or what she's been taught to believe by society and by men and all that other stuff what she believes is the perfection of beauty yeah and i think it's fascinating to imagine seeing this without the context of the book and not knowing from looking at this that this is the same person because you might see this and be like oh clearly that's the villain and that's like the hero that's being oppressed by the villain and like yeah. there is truth to that statement yeah. in a certain way if you look at it like this the the true Levana, the burned Levana, the scarred Levana, is in many ways at odds with her public persona mm-hmm. um but i think that that's just so fascinating to think about this image out of context i thought man that's a really insightful to say that like she is kind of her own hero and villain of the story. That's basically what Ferris is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautifully. Yeah, so, beautifully said. I was so mad. I was so mad that they made me feel sympathetic for. I I for honestly Levana. I think I think in the hands of another writer that story could have been too sympathetic. But yeah, Marissa balanced it just enough so that we understood where she was coming from we did give younger her some sympathy but every time we wanted to sympathize her she did something she said something she brought it back and i think in the hands of another writer that would have gone very poorly but not not with marissa so i am i'm desperately trying to get both of my coworkers who i love to read and or finish the lunar chronicles because yes my coworker Allie like stalled out partway through Scarlet and like never kept reading. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And Bailey has never picked any of them up. Um, And she was like, it's just, it's intimidating because everything she writes is a big, long series. Yeah. And And I was like, no, you're right. There's a lot. And I said, yeah, it can be hard to get into. She's like, I'd love to read some of her writing. If she wrote standalones, I was like, well, the only standalone she's written is heartless, but um, you should only read that if you want your emotions to be completely destroyed. And you want to be left in. That's true. Have a companion novel, but right this moment, it's a standalone. (laughs) But so I I warned her. I was like, "Listen, Heartless is very good, but it will just destroy you." And she's like, Mm -hmm. "Okay, good to know." And then she came back to work the next day, and she's like, "So I started listening to it." (laughs) So I get updates from her. She's been out of town for the past week, so I'm excited when she comes back from vacation to see if she's finished Heartless, and then we can like just talk about that emotional devastation and i think if she finished it and she liked it i can get her on board the lunar just chronicles like a support train. group for well especially because she's she's listening to the audiobook mm-hmm. and i was Which like well brilliant. yeah i was like listen it's the same audiobook narrator for all of the books marissa writes right isn't that so, like, amazing if you like her she does all of them she's a brilliant narrator yeah yeah but yeah absolutely no, this golden this um, image is beautiful. I love the kind of circlet 
tiara headpiece that she's wearing as the queen. Like, I don't even know exactly what to call it because it doesn't meet in the front. It's just, just like... Just some kind of adornment, yeah. This, just this violent, like, spike. It almost looks, looks like, like a barbed knife. wire. Yeah, barbed wire or a knife. Like, something that's very almost sinister, but also strikingly beautiful. Yeah, which could describe all of Lavana's appearances. Yes. It's beautiful, but yeah. Ugh. This is what I love so much about the fan art is that it sparks so many conversations and ideas and concepts that go far beyond the image that we're seeing. So big thank you to both of those artists for letting me share. You can find their artwork on our website and on the Prince Kai Fanpot Instagram page. I can't insert chapter discussions because I'm actually recording out of order. <laughs> like this episode doesn't come out until like late July, early August. So I'm going to future Bethany is going to insert the chapter titles for chapter 81 and 82. Chapter 81 is my songs. Know what you did in the dark by fallout boy. And chapter 82 is hit me with your best shot by Pat Benatar. And that's what happens when I'm both pregnant and directing a show. My availability is crap. It is also what happens when I refuse to be like, okay, I'll just get a different guest host. No, you're doing that episode. It's, that's, <laughs> I will figure something out. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that deeply because one of my favorite quotes for one of the chapters we're going to talk about is not just my favorite quote of that chapter. It is, I think, my favorite quote from the entire <gasps> series. I cannot wait for this. So... Like, don't necessarily hold me to that because I'm sure that there are other quotes that I love. But, like, if you ask me right now, off the cuff, quote something from the Lunar Chronicles and you need to quote it verbatim, it will be this line. I cannot but we'll wait get there. for this. Are you kidding? Oh, my gosh. Okay, <laughs> let's get into it right this second because I want to hear what it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so last week we left off with the battle starting. Everybody showed up and she like let her arm fall. That was such a cool last line. Where in Kai's perspective, he and the other Earthen leaders are still trapped with the lunar aristocracy and the lunars treat the battle like it's really bad reality television. It's incredibly infuriating. Like I, it really stresses me out when I read that part. Listen, the last time I was on here, I compared the Lunars to the Capitol um, people from Hunger Games. And, like, that impulse is not going away as I read this. Because I'm very much reminded of the people in the Capitol during, like, Mockingjay. um, When things got real. And they were kind of confronted with, like, the intensity that now this is happening to them. And, like, that's... That's very much here. And, like, you've got Kai being super frustrated and you've got Torin who's like, listen, I agree with you. However, you have to think about, like, how they've been brought up and yeah. what, they've, what they've been conditioned to think and believe, which doesn't excuse their behavior, but it does explain their behavior, which I think is a really important distinction. Like, like basically what we were just talking about with Lavana, it doesn't excuse... It just explains. Yeah. And I, I appreciate Torin because he, this is where you get like the diplomatic wisdom that comes from all of his experience, right? Is that Kai is just extremely frustrated, but Torin is capable of playing 
the devil's advocate. And it's like, it's not even so much uh, an arguing for, like, I think there's some validity there. Like, he's very upfront about the fact that there isn't. It's just trying to calm Kai down and, like, give him a little bit of perspective. And, like, it's no secret, I'm a Torin stan. Um, Me too. Outside of Outside of our main nine, he's, like, my favorite character. Um, I absolutely love him and I love his relationship with Kai. And I'm happy anytime and- I get to see Torin. Me too. I love him. And I think that, you know, we talked earlier about how doing the podcast has made me really appreciate the wolflet romance. I think it's also really made me appreciate Torin as a character and the incredibly huge and important and often unsung hero that he is in this series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love his support for Cinder in this chapter and how he gives her this this title of honor, which I think just goes back to what we were saying. It's like, it's these moments that really make us appreciate who, who Torrent is and how far he's come. Right. Because in the beginning he was like, Celine doesn't exist. And then it was like, okay, you can't just fall in love with this cyborg. Like you can't be a teen in love at the, at the ball. You got to get your together. And then it was like, okay, you can kidnap him. Right. And the (laughs) fact that he let her kidnap him is such a big, important step. Like, not to rehash what I'm sure you spent a ton of time talking about in a previous episode, but, like, I absolutely love that scene because there was probably not a lot he could do to keep Cinder from kidnapping Kai, but he could have made it very easy to track them and get him back. Yeah, he didn't have to tell her about the other chip. He made a big, risky decision in that moment. It speaks to the trust he places in Kai. Mm Mm-hmm. That he then extended that trust to Cinder, even though she had just shot Kai. <laughs> and was kidnapping and, like, him. Thoroughly incapacitated him. Like, there's, there's still always been, from Kai, that level of trust, even when he was being told, like, she's this horrible criminal. He was always like, there's something that doesn't sit right about that with me. And I think she's trying her best. And so, like, Torin is great because, like... He has that level and measure of trust for both of them. And I, I love mm-hmm. it. I 100% feel that too. So while we're in this chapter, I want to talk about how the Lunars sort of don't understand their circumstances. Like we, we get that they're mocking the Earthens and the servants because they just don't have a concept of the world around them. But how do we feel about the fact that they also don't take into consideration that they might be there as not protected guests of Lavana's, but like one last I don't know group of people that she could use at the end it's it's really interesting to me because I don't know that that is necessarily true if that makes yeah, sense same. like I don't yeah. I don't know that I believe that Lavana is holding them in reserve to use later I think Lavana honestly just isn't thinking about them at all I would say the Earthens are there for the potential of, of yeah. later leverage, but the aristocrats, I I don't think that they are on her radar enough. No, and I think that they would be. I think that they would be stunned to realize how of how little importance they actually are. Oh yeah, to Lavana that like the Earthens in the room are more important to Lavana strategically than they are, because the Earthens hold. 
I don't want to dismiss the lives of all these people, even if they are a bit spoiled and privileged, but the earthens hold value in terms of they can be used as leverage, whereas these aristocrats, what could she possibly use them for? Right. I mean, Kai says that they could be her puppets, but I don't even know if that would be beneficial to her. Right. Yeah. So Kai has to fix the port screen, which is one of my favorite scenes in the series where he uh, he whacks the port screen. We love yeah, a callback. callback. Yeah, it makes me really happy. It was one of those um, moments when I was reading for the first time that I saw it coming. I knew it was going to happen. And then it happened and he said it and I was like, yes. It made me so happy. I remember the first time I read it, I was like, oh, is it coming? Is it coming? Yes, it's there. This is so good. And then every time I see it, it definitely brings a smile to my face. So this, we have a transition in a moment. This chapter portion with Kai ends with Kai basically trying to not necessarily control the aristocrats, but to bring that perspective to them, to allow them to see how what the danger they actually are in. And then when they don't respect him and they ignore him, he's like, well, I have bombs. And they're like, okay, well, you're not going to kill yourself. And he's like, what about your homes? And they shut up really fast, which is just even further proof of their, their shallow connection to the world, that they care more about their belongings and their things than the lives of actual humans. I also love the moment where he tries to get them on his side, or at least to listen to him and obey him by telling them like, I'm your king. Because mm-hmm. because I feel like that's kind of would be the expectation on Earth, where it's yeah. like even if you didn't like this person, like the fact that they are, you know, they have that title, they have that crown because they married your ruler would carry some weight. And I just love that the Lunars are like, we don't recognize that. That doesn't mean anything to us. Because it's this it's this really fascinating reminder that leaders and rulers have power because the people give it to them. them power yeah and if they're not going to obey the people in charge then there isn't actually any power there you know what it makes me wonder if kai did come to levana let's give it a different circumstance like let's pretend there's no revolution kai and levana got married to the antidote now they're married if kai did come to levana with like a concern that the aristocrats weren't respecting him. Would she step in and defend him and be like, look, he's my king and I'm going to mess all you up if you don't be listening. Or would she laugh the same way they do? I think it would depend on if she saw it as a mark of disrespect against her. Mm hmm. But I think that would be the primary consideration. It wouldn't be about whether or not he's being respected. It would be like, does their disrespect of him reflect a disrespect of me as well? And you know what? Her reaction would confirm or deny that because if she went against it, it would prove that she felt like it was disrespectful and that she needed to address it. And if she didn't go against it, it would be like, oh, well, even if it is disrespectful, I care so little about them and you that I'm not even going to warrant a response. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a transition here. We go to Cress's perspective. Remember that she's hidden while these lunar technicians try to fix all of her amazing work because the video has been released. Everyone can see what Lavada really looks like, what her glamour has been hiding for so long, 
And um, it's really interesting to me because we have a technician here that's like, you know, oh, no, did you see her face? This is totally disturbing. And the guard is like, I don't care. She's still really powerful and she can still like ruin our lives and kill us. So it doesn't really matter what she looks like. <laughs> and I'm kind of on the guard side because I'm like, yeah, I don't know if a picture of, of what she really looks like would terrify me that much. Yeah. And I think that gets into a little bit of spoilery territory for how the end of this book goes. But I think there's there's an interesting question inherent in that of when is Lavana powerful and what are the things that could undercut her power, literally like her ability to control her glamour and to control the people around her. Um, and that question gets answered in the end of this book. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting that it's brought up here as well. Like, does what she matter looks like, does what she looks like really matter? If she's still got that amount of power, when we have seen that a lot of the level of control, hang on, I got to, very loud car driving past my house. A lot of the lunar control is dependent on confidence and on energy and on like personal stamina. I also think a lot of Lavana's abilities come from her confidence and all of her confidence is based on her glamour so without her glamour without her confidence what is she capable of accomplishing without that confidence is she going to second guess her judgment when it comes to all the strategies that she's put into place when it comes to battle decisions when it comes to the choices that she makes that she thinks are the, in the best interest of luna um, and so i think that i think that the technician and the guard both have very warranted responses I'm probably more inclined to go with the guard. I have a very strong sense of self-preservation. And if I think someone is capable of murder, I don't really care what they look like. Um, but I also think that the reaction the tech has is what we want the reaction of everyone to be because then they're distrusting of her and it leaves room for Cinder to come in. And I think it's also important to remember that Lavana's appearance, her true appearance, is one of the things that has always been a huge insecurity for her. Mm-hmm. Like, we have seen that in book after book. Yeah. Especially in Ferrist. Especially in Ferrist. I also love the conversation that these guys have, like, just praising Cress. Like, oh my gosh, whoever did this, whoever did this is so good at what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> they're, like, annoyed but impressed. And then when they see her and she comes out, they're like, wait. It's like, and I don't know if that's like misogynistic because she's a girl or maybe sizes because she looks really small and not very intimidating. But like, either way, it's rude that they're surprised by her. It's, it reminds me of when Kai was like, you're the mechanic. I was expecting a grown man. And she's like, huh, imagine that. Yeah. You know, I was like, that's. Very stereotypical of you. We're just going to skate past it, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I also love my favorite thing about this whole series, like this whole chapter, is Cress m multiple times being like, you know, you could just join Cinder's side, and then none of this will be a problem. 
Like, it's a desperate last-ditch attempt, oh, but yeah. I applaud her for making it. I do, too. And I love that, like, even though it's not technically true, she's like, well, Celine has allied herself with Earth. And it's like, this hasn't been, like, confirmed or denied. She's just, like, dating Kai, kind of. Right. But in, in the words of the immortal Taylor Swift, it's not not true. <laughs> so it kind of counts. <laughs> Um, but that's where the chapter ends. Uh, the alarms go off. They're under attack from outside the domes. And Crest says, Celine has allied herself with Earth, but it's not too late to join the other side. Let us discuss our song choices. Typical Cassie's fashion. I assume we have a beautiful musical we, theater song. Yes, we have a, we have a musical of theater course. song. So I... I kind of struggled a little bit with all three of these chapters because I don't feel like, or at least the episodes I've been on before, I don't feel like mm-hmm. she's done this split perspective. And I feel like this she's is kind of like a, a few times, but it's always like this where it's like very short scenes that yes. are almost disconnected. And so I'm sitting here going, okay, I need to come up with a title that pairs with both of the scenes mm-hmm. that we see. And so that was, like, kind of my struggle as I was going through. So I ended up picking a song from Ragtime that's called Make Them Hear You because I feel like that's what both Kai and Cress are trying to accomplish in their portions mm-hmm. of this chapter. They are trying to convince other people to listen to them and convince them that there's a different way of thinking. And this is, again, one where the lyrics don't necessarily match up to that exactly, but the title works beautifully. So that was my pick. And see, I would say that my lyrics match up really well, but my title doesn't necessarily match. So I chose Young Volcanoes by Fallout Boy, um, which is a song about fighting the regime and trying to come out on the other side as victorious. Um, and some of the lines that like I really found really beautiful in comparison is when Rome's in ruins, we are the lions free of the Colosseums. Um, the Artemisia Palace is under attack because the lions, the workers, they have escaped their Colosseums and they have come to demand their freedom and their their rightful place among the society. Um, tonight, the foxes hunt the hounds again we're switching the roles we're reversing who's got the power between um these this in this society um and i love the the concept that crest has in common with kai like what you said where they're both trying to be heard um especially because it's in two different perspectives we have crest appealing to two lunars but these lunars are of the lunar working class in terms of Artemisia, right? Because they're they're working class in Artemisia, which is very different than working class in the rest of Luna. Right. Um, but we have these aristocrats who have a very um, luxurious and and um, giving lifestyle, and I think it's interesting to complement those two things by discussing, like if we picture the foxes as the victims then we know that they're being hunted by the people in power and so that would be the aristocrats versus the sort of working class everyday lunars and then in the middle you have this group of kind of 
moderate working class where in Artemisia they're the bottom of the barrel because they're guards and technicians but outside of Artemisia they're still kind of in a much higher position they're well fed they're well cared for they have you know they get abused a lot right but they're not going hungry they're not overworked they're not dying from factory poisoning um so yeah I just I really liked that concept that like the Rome which I'm comparing to Artemisia um is falling apart but the people and the masses are going to survive and be victorious because they're ready to fight for what they believe in. Yeah, absolutely. We already touched on mine a little bit. Um, we love a callback. So is this the one that's your favorite quote no, from this the whole is, series? Oh, no, okay, this okay. is not my favorite quote from the whole series. That one's one of the later <laughs> chapters. Uh, but I do really like this quote. Um, I chose the callback moment where he whacks the comm screen and he says, I don't know, but you'd be surprised how often that works, which is exactly what mm-hmm. Cinder said to him the first time they met when she was trying to fix Nancy by whacking her on the table. <laughs> and when he was like, what are you doing? She's like, you'd be surprised how often that works. And well, I, I love that we get the call back here. It, it makes me smile every time. Yeah, me too. So mine was, have you considered joining the other side from page 703, which was um, a crest quote. Ah, oh, chef's kiss. I love Cress Beautiful. so much. She has grown so, so much. much. Like, can you I imagine? Know, the beginning of her, like, arc on this series is she Cress needs... on the satellite could never. Yeah. Yes. 100%. Like, I love it. She has Ugh. learned so much from Thorn, but I think it's the taking on of some of that, like, sarcastic, charming mm-hmm. confidence is, like, my favorite part. Because this is such a Thorn line. Like, this is what Thorn would say in this situation. Yeah. Or maybe Winter, but in different words. Yes, yeah. Winter would be very... Winter would be very earnest with it. Like, very, like, like honest and open about it. And Thorn would be very sarcastic. And Cress is kind of, like, in between the two of them. Right. No, I love it because I also think it would be a good poster... Yes, yes. Like, like Rosie the Riveter style, but with have you considered joining the other side? Beautiful. Or just, like, join the other side or something? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so let's talk about chapter 84. Oh, another one where we have multiple perspectives. Yes. Um, Aiko is in the fetal position. She's hiding from all of the chaos. She's pretending she's asleep until it's over. And um, it's only thoughts of Cinder that spark her bravery and bring her back to the fight. I want to talk about so many things just in this first, like, few paragraphs. First of all, I love and hate that Aiko has always wanted to be human. She's always wanted to be beautiful. She finally gets that way. And, like, every five minutes, her human body is getting just wrecked and destroyed. Like, it's very poetic, but I'm also, like, can Aiko just have, like, a good day like <laughs> I feel like she's target practice at this point. It is an injustice. I'm a hundred percent on her side. She well, is not replaceable just re- because she's kind of replaceable. And it reminds me of a moment that I really love from um I think it's from Rogue and uh Wires and Nerves, which are her graphic novels after the fact, and I don't think that this counts as a spoiler. Um, but at one point she's talking to somebody and and he asks her, like, when your body gets dismantled and destroyed like that, like, why don't you just go get a new body? 
Yeah. And she's like, my friend's bodies aren't replaceable, so why should mine be? I love it. And I agree with her. Like, and I agree with her 100% because that's exactly who she is and why shouldn't she feel that way? Yeah. And I love that she's starting to get her own perspectives in these chapters as she kind of gradually becomes more human and less android. She gets to have a voice in the narrative. And I love being inside like her perspective because it's, again, it's written very well so that you never forget just like the turns of phrases that she's using, like remind you, like you are listening to the inner monologue of an android. Right. Um, but a very human android and an android who loves right. and an android who cares. And I I really love that about this character. And just the indignation, just the indignation of like, why is it my body that's getting torn to shreds? Right. It's like, okay, well, because anybody else would be dead now, sweetheart. Like, right. Right. Like your chip is okay. So technically like, yeah. <laughs> What do you think of this concept of sleeping until it's over? Like, I definitely feel that way when I'm sick or when I have a really bad migraine or something. Yeah. So uh, how do you feel about the concept of, like, I just want to sleep until I feel better or this is over? Yeah, I can – I get that. I, I feel that impulse a lot. Um, I think it it becomes slightly dangerous when it's, like, something that – because, like, a headache or a migraine, like, yeah, sleep until that's over. Absolutely. But when it's something like there's something important happening around you and you just want to disengage from it, it's not always the best option to disengage. Um, Sometimes you have to stay engaged. But, like, I felt this. I'm very introverted. And I have a a pretty low threshold for, like, social interaction, even with people Mm -hmm. that I really enjoy. Um, But especially if I'm, like, put into a situation where – I didn't ask to be here. I don't want to be here. There's a lot of people around and I'm having to socialize. Like I will definitely hit a point where I'm like, and I would like this to be over. I would like to yeah, jump ahead to like the that. moment where this is done. Um, I had to go, I was a, a delegate to a convention for the women's group that I'm a part of like right after I joined. And luckily it was happening in my town on my campus. And so Part of me was, like, a little sad that I wasn't staying on site because, like, there was a kind of camaraderie and getting to know people that I was missing out on. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it did mean that when I had these back-to-back sessions and then I had, like, a half an hour break, I knew where all of the, like, quiet places on campus were. Mm -hmm. And I could just, like, zip up to the fourth floor of the student union where nobody else at the convention was going to go and, like, sit in the dark by myself for, like, 20 minutes to reset. Have you seen the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice? I have. I'm not the biggest fan in the world, but that can be an <laughs> in-depth conversation for another time. <laughs> well, there's a there's a scene in the film where it's like the middle of the dance and she like tucks herself into a dark um, like hallway to get away from everything. And I feel that. I feel well, that yeah. vibe. Yeah. I'm like, I have always been. Which is not really a reflection of the movie at all. Just that, no. just your conversation of hiding reminded me of that scene. Listen, I've always been very on the side of Darcy in those early scenes. Especially once you, like, know what he's going through at the end. Because I, too, would hate those <laughs> forced interactions at the dances. And be like, I just want to go home now. I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to dance. I don't want to be in this crowded room. 
So in that sense, yes, I understand that impulse of like, I would just like to disengage until this is done. I'm kind of on a weird spectrum because um, I do I do suffer from um, spouts of depression. And so I do go through phases of like, I want to be surrounded by people. And then as soon as people are around me, I immediately want to go home and be alone. Yep. So I've, I definitely, I don't know, I feel I feel both sides of this. I guess. And I get into that with my husband sometimes too, because like we are both introverted, but he has a higher threshold for people than I do. So like if we're going out somewhere together, chances are I'm going to reach my limit before he is ready to reach his limit. And so it's kind of finding that balance of like, Hey, I am ready to go, but I don't want to rush you into going. So we, we strike that compromise of me staying a little bit longer than I want to and him leaving a little bit earlier than he wants to so that we can can both, like, save some mental health without either of us turning into, like, a horrible, angry monster. <laughs> I also feel like, um, not to, like, compare human experiences to dog experiences, but... One of our dogs has autism and he gets severe social anxiety. And if he's on his leash, he can handle like five to 10 minutes of contact with other animals or humans or kids or anything. But after that, he legit doesn't want anyone in his personal space to the point where like, I'm almost always allowed, but to the point where sometimes like he doesn't want Scamp there. He doesn't want Quentin there. Like he just feels like people are in his bubble and they need to leave. If he's off his leash, he's fine. And I think because he can like walk away, you know, like he can remove himself from a situation if he needs to. But when he's like, like, like I can't take him to PetSmart, for example, right? Because after like five minutes of all those, all that noise, all those smells, all those people, all those animals, like he is done. He cannot handle the social, like he's done. He's ready to go sit in the car by himself. Um, so I don't want to compare like human experiences because I know some people might not like that very much, but like having a dog whose response to interacting with other living creatures be like, it like changes my, it changes my perspective on things sometimes because I'm like, this would be so much fun. And then I'm like, "Mm, but how would Beowulf handle this? Uh Like. Like, going to the park and going swimming, yes. Beowulf loves swimming. He would be so happy. But does he have to stay on a leash, or is it the type of park where he can be off-leash? Because if he's on a leash, even if it's the extendable, he's going to get anxiety, and it's going to it's gonna frustrate him because he wants to swim, because he loves swimming and he loves the water, but he can't disassociate from the leash. So it's just it's it's it just gives me a different perspective sometimes, having him mm-hmm. in my life. Absolutely. So let's get back on task. <laughs> These wolfing soldiers are here. They're uncontrollable. It's difficult to tell who's an enemy and an ally, which is a theme that will come up frequently. Uh, Iko decides to shoot her way until she can get to Cinder, who is hiding and watching the fight from afar, which I have some opinions on. Um, but I do love her joke about anger management. That is really funny to me. Cinder says that she needs to follow Lavana into the palace, and Aiko is like, oh yeah, Kai is in the room, we gotta go. Um, and even though she's very uncomfortable around all the bloodshed, she wants to be with Cinder, and she wants to check on Kai, so they decide to go to the Great Hall. And that's where their portion ends, 
How do you feel about Cinder, like, removing herself from the fight and just sort of watching it? I feel like it was not fully a conscious decision that Cinder made. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the moments where I am struck by the fact that Cinder is 16. She has no training to be a leader. She has spent most of her life not being listened to. Right. And now all of a sudden, like, not only is she trying to launch this revolution, but she's now all of a sudden very much in the middle of exactly what that means. And I think she gets overloaded by it. So I don't know that it's a choice to, like, hunker down and stop fighting while everybody else is fighting around her. I think it's very similar to probably how I would react in that situation, which is like just part of my my brain is going to shut down. And I'm just going to kind of stand there and like stare at what's happening around me in horror until I get snapped out of it and reminded of like this is what my ultimate goal needs to be. And I think there's probably – this isn't from her perspective, so we can't verify this, but I feel like part of her inner struggle is stuck between – I need to go after Lavana. I need to leave these people and get into the palace safely so that I can confront Lavana because I'm the only one who can. Mm-hmm. And I can't leave all of these people to do this fighting for me. I kind of looked at it as similar to like double dutch. You want to get in, you know you need to get in, but how do you make the decision of when it's right to jump in? Exactly, that too. Yeah. That's kind of how I was reading this. And I know that that's like a really vague comparison. Like, oh, yeah, war and double dutch are the same thing. But like, <laughs> that was kind of how my brain was thinking of, of this, especially because she knows that like when she jumps in, she's not really going to fight. She's trying to find a way to get to the palace because this battle means nothing if Lavana is still is still in control. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's going to be a really hard thing for her to come to terms with of like, I amassed this army. I brought them all here. I asked them to join this fight. And now I'm not participating in it. I'm in, you could look at it almost as I'm like running away into the palace when that's not what Mm -hmm. she's doing. There's a larger end goal. Yeah. That has to be met. So we transition here again. We have a dual perspective chapter Um, this next half of the chapter is in Scarlet's perspective. Uh, Scarlet is kind of having the same reaction as Aiko. She can't tell the difference between the soldiers and the Thaumas who are controlling her allies. She tries to focus her fighting on the Thaumaturges because she knows that that's who's going to need, um, to be removed from the, from the fighting. And, uh, she's also tired of bloodshed. And the massacre that's happening before her. And she, and even Wolf says, like, he's just so sick of blood. Yeah. And so I, I very much, this is one of those things that kind of humanizes Icos. We basically just had the exact same perspective where it was hard to tell between your enemies and your comrades. And it was hard to align yourself knowing that all of this is supposed to be for, you know, quote, the greater good. But it's still filled with death and blood and violence. It is trauma-filled even when you are mm-hmm. in the right. Yes. Like, yeah. being on the correct side does not negate the trauma of this event. And it doesn't make it easier to deal with. No. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love this scene. Um, she's She tries to give herself a weapon by pulling an axe out, and Athama controls her body almost immediately, and Wolf steps in to stop her. And so we have this really cute, like, Wolf and Scarlet reunion. I wish I could have found a... a, a fan art of this particular scene right if you have one send it to me i'm sure it's beautiful i love before wolf gets to her yeah that as soon as she realizes her body is not in her control she starts yelling you know get away from me don't come near me like warning the people around her i think it would be different if she had a gun it's the only power she has if it was a gun, like, getting away wouldn't do any good, but she's got an axe. So, like, she's she's limited by her actual, like, range of motion. Yeah. And so, like, the fact that she has the, the presence of mind, there's a line, someone else had control of her hands, but they hadn't thought to take her tongue, at least. So, like, she has the presence of mind to say, you know, get away from me, run away, get out of my, my path. Do you think that's what alerted Wolf? I think quite possibly. Like, Wolf was already looking for her, and then he heard her talk, and then he realized how quickly he needed to step in. Yeah, I think there's a really good chance that that's true, especially because, like, being able to smell her wouldn't be much good in this, because there's Mm -hmm. so many people, and there's so much chaos, and there's so much blood that it would overwhelm. I think definitely her shouting is what alerts him to her presence and that she's in trouble. Does he specifically say the smell of blood, the taste of blood, just blood in taste general? Taste of blood, say? I think. The taste of blood? Okay. Because I was thinking, like... Yeah, taste of blood. Okay. Because I was thinking if it was the smell of blood, that would have almost been very poetic because that would kind of indicate what you were just saying. Like, he can't even smell her because of all the blood. So, like, maybe he was inhaling so much of it trying to look for her. I don't know. I think it's more that he's being used... Mm-hmm. Like the new instincts he's been given, he's being used to like literally tear people apart with his jaws. Like he has probably torn out so many throats at this point. Yeah. And like that's horrifying to think about, but like that's the reality. And I, I love this, this reunion. Because like she almost takes him out with the axe, except that he's stronger than she is. Yeah. And then the Thalman just kind of gives up. He's like, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to fight a wolf <laughs> wolf hybrid. And then when she's, like, this is kind of the first time we have seen him since his transformation be with Scarlet. Yes. So we saw him earlier in the wedding with Cinder where he was struggling against the new instincts and then the recognition of Cinder. And so I think, like, I'm trying to think back to when I read this for the first time, I think there's, like, that little bit of fear when he finds her here that it's going to be a repeat of what we see in book two in Scarlet at the end of it when he finds her her. and he attacks her because he's been manipulated into thinking. So it's like, Oh my gosh, is that going to happen here again? But instead it's no, it's immediate. Like I'm protecting you from yourself. The thaumaturge leaves her alone. And then she has this kind of mini breakdown of like, I almost, and I would have, and he's just immediately like you didn't. And there's no, even though he's now been genetically altered 
to turn against his friends. It does not work with Scarlet. And there's never right. even a hint of it in this moment. It's he finds her and immediately, this is the wolf we know. This is the relationship that we know. He's not going to hurt her. He's going to protect her. Right. I love this scene for those of you who've read Half-Blood Prince. I've, as always with when I mention Harry Potter, I want to be very clear that I do not stand with J.K. Rowling, but I can't let her ruin my childhood either. Same. So I have a very difficult relationship with that whole thing. So I just want to make that clear. Um, that was something my sibling says is that they can't stand J.K. Rowling, but they won't let J.K. Rowling ruin a very large portion of who they turned out to be as a person. Yeah. Um, and I think they just worded that so beautifully. But this scene where she touches his face and she basically is like, yeah, I don't really care that they changed what you look like because you as, as you, as your soul of who you are is still the same. Um, it very much reminds me of my favorite scene in the entire Harry Potter franchise, which is at the end of book six, Spoiler alert, I guess. <laughs> um, Bill is attacked. That by book is almost race. 20 years old at this point. I know, so I, know. I feel like the statute of limitations <laughs> is up on spoilers for Harry Potter. Um, so at the end of that book, Greyback the werewolf attacks Bill and his face is completely marred. And Fleur has this ridiculously beautiful line where she says that it doesn't matter what he looks like. She's beautiful enough for the both of them. And that's not going to it. His attack doesn't change how much he loves her or how much she loves him. And it's my favorite part in the entire series. I think it's absolutely just like poetic gold romance. And it reminded me of this scene. I, I love this scene. Um, this was almost my favorite quote, but it was a little too close to yours. Um, but like she, so <laughs> she sees him and she asks like, did they change you? Like, obviously physically they changed you, but did they change you? And he doesn't know at this point, like he's uncertain and he has the line about like, I'm t tired of the taste of blood. And she's like, well, it's okay. We don't serve a lot of blood on the farm. You know, we're going to have to work on your diet anyway. And then he try he goes all noble and he tries to pull the whole, like, Scarlet, they did change me. I'm dangerous now. And I just absolutely love her response. <laughs> what she if just, I'm the bad guy? <laughs> yeah. She cuts him off and she's like, oh, please, we don't have time for this. Like, I don't have time for your inner, like, turmoil about whether or not you're dangerous. And I love that she tells him, you have always been dangerous. Mm -hmm. But that does not change what we are to each other. Yeah. No, I absolutely love that, though. Like, we don't have time for this. And she just kisses him to, like... He's, like, all this. prepared to go into this existential angst. And she's like, nobody. nah, -uh, We're not doing that. Right. I'm sorry. Bale just jumped on my lap. And he weighs <laughs> about 65 pounds. So it <laughs> caught me off guard. Hello. Um, they are not doing well with Quentin being out of town. So they've both been a little... A little clingy. A little... A little clingy, but that's okay because I need the I'm I need their clinginess too. But that's sort of where the chapter ends. Wolf says he won't kill their allies. He vows to protect Scarlet, and they might be losing, but they won't be losing for long because Princess Winter is coming, and she brought reinforcements. Yeah, she did. 
Absolutely. We love it. So let's talk about your song choice for this one. So my song choice from this one is from um, Allegiance, the musical. It's called This Is Not Over. And there were a few different musicals I could have gone with for a song called This Is Not Over or This Is Not Over Yet. Um, There's a few that have that. And I picked this one specifically because of um, some of the lyrics in the chorus, which are, this is not over, we are not over, you are my future, not my past. And I felt like, again, that this really worked for Iko with Cinder and Scarlet with Wolf. And just kind of this repeated mantra of like, hey, we're still here, we're still fighting. We're not done. We're looking ahead. So let's do what we have to do. Yeah. I love that. So I chose The Great War by Taylor Swift, which is about fighting in a war. And if if you both survive at the end of it, then you get to be in love and have your happy ever after. (laughs) Which is very ominous, I know. But it came to mind, especially because some of the lyrics are... uh, all that bloodshed crimson clover, the sweet dream was over. My hand was the one you reached for, which I think is perfect right now mm-hmm. um, because they they can't really have their like poetic uh, happily ever after sweet dreams come true yet. And they very much are reaching for each other in this scene. And there's bloodshed everywhere, which has become a sort of theme of this last few chapters in particular like the line of it turned into something bigger somewhere in the haze you got a sense i'd been betrayed when wolf went through this transformation he had these very fuzzy kind of blurry dreams about death and carnage and and somewhere in the middle of all that was tomatoes and the memory of scarlet but he doesn't know if he's changed he doesn't know if he's betrayed her and neither does she until this moment that they have to be together where he looks up at her with honor and truth. That was the night I nearly lost you. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Yeah. I just love that. Like fighting in a war can be very difficult and you don't know who you can trust. And so it's nice when you get to the end of it. And as it turns out, the person that you loved is still there for you. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about your chapter quote. So the quote I went with, and I honestly don't remember if this was from Iko's section or Scarlet's because it could easily (laughs) apply to both of them, um, was she'd witnessed enough death already, even if this one was an enemy. And I I think think that one was Scarlet, but, but I'm going to check because I don't know. (laughs) But it could apply to either of them because again, we've got this like running theme of the bloodshed, but I think this is such a perfect encapsulation of war. And, like, just the senselessness of the loss and the destruction. And that, like, yes, okay, technically they're on their side and we're on our side and we're fighting each other. And so we should be happy when one of the enemy, quote unquote, you know, goes down. But at this point, it's just another senseless death. Because especially in this war and especially in this battle, like, what really makes someone an enemy when half of the people here are being controlled by other people, regardless of what side they're on. And so, yeah, maybe this death that's in front of whichever one of them is talking about, like maybe it was a lunar guard or maybe it was, you know, a lunar soldier. Yeah. 
but what are the chances that they were actually choosing this of their own volition? Like, what are the chances that they were being controlled into this moment by somebody else? And this kind of just perfectly sums up to me, like, just the senselessness of everything that's happening around them. Yeah, and I think that this quote could be taken out of any book or any story, and it would immediately bring up the concept of just war in general, and and how do you know if you're on the right side if there's still so much death involved. So my quote was, you're my alpha, and I'm yours, and that's not going to change because they gave you a new jawline. Which is just beautiful. I love, Uh love, love. I love Scarlet so much. This is one of those things that makes Wolflet such a beautiful couple. Not that the other couples would have, you know, shallow expectations after this kind of experience, but... I, I love that the two of them do not dance around this I am your person and you are my person concept. Yeah. Almost from the very beginning, it's been like, yep, this is, your, this is it. I don't have to say it because you know. Um, and I love that she just immediately, like, she knows where he's coming from. She knows what he's upset about. She knows what he's worried about. And she kisses him. She tells him, like, you belong to me and I belong to you and I don't care what you look like. It doesn't matter because you are still you and I am still me and that's what's important. Yeah. Um, But it's just, it's such a beautiful line. I love it so much. Yeah. And as I stated, I love the moment that leads into this one, which is just her like, no, we don't have time. We don't have time for your angst. (laughs) I love it. Just like shutting it down. And and it's them, right? Like, Oh, it's so them. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from one of our podcast besties, and then we will discuss chapter 85. Hello, everybody. I'm Megan. And I'm Samantha. With Literary Luscious. And we want to tell you about our podcast. Join us every other week as we dive into a sci-fi or fantasy novel, where we also drink cocktails inspired by the novel. We post YouTube videos of us making the cocktails. And a lot of the times, we even have the authors on, including Dennis E. Taylor, Marissa Myers, and even Angela Roquet. So join us because you don't want to miss the podcast that's been described as not taking ourselves too seriously. And with that, we say, stay Stay lively with your libations. Chapter 85, we are in Aiko's perspective. I want to point out, this is all one perspective, few. (laughs) (laughs) We are in Aiko's perspective. She and Sendar are running through the palace looking for Kai and looking for... Lavana, and um, they end up uh, finding them guarded by the same guard that saved Winter and some other dude who turns out to be a jerk. I love that Aiko is like let down when she sees what Lavana, what Lavana really looks like because she would have seen that no matter what since she's immune to glamours, but like she had always had this huge expectation in her head because the queen is famous for her beauty. And then when she sees her, it's, it's like, this isn't like a, I don't like deformity thing. This is just like a, huh, that's not what I was promised. And I think what's really fascinating about this to me is that like, there's no way to show Aiko what the mm-hmm. queen's glamour looks like because you cannot capture it. And it reminds me of like, one of my favorite scents in the world is a sycamore tree, like mm. right after it rains, which is such a weird scent. 
but I love it. And it took me a while to figure out like that that's what it was that I was smelling that I was loving. But I cannot, you cannot describe a scent to another person. Like if I've got a favorite color and I want you to know what my favorite color is, assuming you can see color, all I have to do is point to it and say, that's my favorite color. And then you're like, oh, okay, I get it. True. It's like, if I have a favorite song, all I have to do is play it for you. And as long as you can hear it, then you know, okay, I get it. I understand. But like, I can't, for, for more commonplace smells, yes, of course I can tell you what I'm smelling that I love smelling. Like I can bake cookies for you. I can burn this candle for you. But when it's like an obscure scent, I have no way of like communicating that to another person. I've tried with my husband, like as we're walking and I smell it and I'm like that, that smell right there. Like take a big whiff right now. And he's like, I don't smell anything. And I'm like, I hate this. (laughs) And I feel a similar kind of like frustration coming out of this moment with Aiko because like she's never going to know what this glamour looked like. Yeah. I mean, somebody could, like, paint it, but even that's an interpretation, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I kind of get what you're saying, because that's one of those, like, sense, smell is one of those senses that can't really be shared. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite smells is called Petrachora. Mm-hmm. It's the smell of fresh rain hitting the pavement, and I don't know why, but it just reminds me of, like, everything in my childhood every summer because I'm from the Midwest where you do get uh, what's called a sun shower which is where the sun will be out and shining and perfectly bright and it'll be super hot outside and it'll just rain buckets for like three and a half minutes and then it's gone and the smell it leaves behind I don't know I just I love that smell and there's there's no way to capture that and I do think that the word Petrichora is really cool, so I think that like it captures your attention in the same way that a strange and unusual smell would, um, but it's just not the same. Let's talk about Kiani. Kiani is the same guard that saved Winter, and by doing so, also saved Aiko. Um, he's very uncomfortable with the very concept of androids, especially one like Aiko, who is so incredibly human he's still caught off guard when she like understands and reciprocates reciprocates sarcasm um but what i appreciate is that he aligns himself with cinder and i do think part of this started when he realized winter had not been murdered by jason because later he goes and tells jason like hey you should leave and take the little girl with you because they know that you're alive and they know that winter's alive they're gonna come get you. Yeah. Um, so Kenny's yeah. Kenny's a good guy, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that we do get to meet some lunars mm-hmm. who are like are Artemisia lunars, who are still good people. Yeah. But like, he doesn't have any more control over his life than the people in the sectors do. Yeah. And so I like that when confronted with the choice and when confronted with all the information, he's making the right choice. And honestly, I think the way he reacts to Aiko makes sense for somebody who's yeah. never never really experienced androids because they're not permitted on the moon. So it would just be like a concept he knows about generally. And even for androids, Aiko is a very unusual android. Yeah, this isn't his, like, his first experience and introduction to an android is not a typical one. 
And so I like that we're getting her perspective here, but like you can also see Kenny's perspective mm-hmm. and like understand where he he's coming from with this interaction. And definitely like go read Wires and Nerves um, <laughs> if you like the interactions between Kenny and Iko because the whole the both those graphic novels center around these two and it's fantastic and I love every second of and it. And we will cover them on the podcast. One hundred percent have that to look forward to you know it kind of makes me wonder your 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 comment about him never being exposed and not knowing what to expect from an android my brain thought what if isaac asimov got to meet Iko? interesting because for those of you who don't know isaac asimov is considered the father of robotic science fiction um he wrote robot dreams he wrote i robot he wrote the foundation series brilliant writer you should definitely go read his work i love it um but he lived in a time before robots were a fully formed concept or idea and honestly a lot of what we see in Ico and in any other robot is very much inspired by his very concept of what a robot could be um and so yeah i would love to be a fly on the wall if he met Ico. Because it's it's a difference in, like, thought between, like, him actually meeting Iko or him meeting, like, Marissa Meyer, who wrote an android right, this way. Because right. there's a lot of discussion you can have around Iko that gets had in Wires and Nerves about, like, yeah. what is being human? What qualifies what you? Like, what does it human? mean to be human? Like, what do you have to have? Yeah. What kind of emotions? What kind of processes? Like... Where is that giant that where is that line drawn? And Iko blurs that line so heavily. Because like on the one hand, isn't she human? She's got a personality, she learns, she grows, she loves, she feels. But she's also a chip. Right. Does the lack of a heartbeat distinguish yeah. whether or not you're a human? And I think that I think that's a fascinating question. And yeah. I think it's really interesting to see it contextualized through Ico specifically. Yeah. So, first of all, I love when the other guard spits and Ico is like, oh, you heathen. Like, ugh. And Rebecca Solaire's narration of that line is just sheer gold. Love it. So, I was going to save this for the quotes, but we're here, so we should talk about it now. This is it. Okay. This is, this is possibly... This is the line that I can always quote without fail. <laughs> is like he spits, he's snarling at Cinder, and he goes, "When she catches you, my queen will eat your heart with salt and pepper." And Cinder comes back completely unbothered with, "Well, my heart is half synthetic, so it'll probably give her indigestion." And I love that line so <laughs> much because it is so cinder it is so unbothered like i don't care you your opinion is so beneath me i don't have time for this i'm embracing now the fact that i'm a cyborg like yeah and it's like it's such a weird threat to make against another person like yeah, my I queen talk about will that. eat your heart with salt <laughs> and pepper, and she's like, "Well, my heart's made of silicon, so you know what? That's really going to be a worse choice for her." I just, I love the snark. I love the sass. Um, the delivery is very fast too. Like that's yeah, right it's off just her like time. boom. I it's so cinder, and I love also 
the foreshadowing. And I won't say any more about that because I know that you are spoiler free in the moment. But I love the foreshadowing (laughs) of this line. And if you know, you know. And if you don't know, you will soon. Yeah, that's very true. And honestly, there's been a lot of discussion about going forward. Will we still be spoiler free once we start doing other books? And and, and I don't think that we will remain spoiler free. Mm-hmm. It's hard. <laughs> Heartless. Right. The talk right now, the plan is moving forward. We will kind of have a spoiler section at the end of the episode to discuss it. Um, or we will have a little sound. So that we can discuss it in the moment. That's what um, YA Book Chats does. When yes, when Drew and little, I yeah when Drew and I were on her podcast, I really liked that structure because we had like okay the first fifteen minutes we're talking about this book and it is spoiler free, and then she was like okay from here on out we're going to talk in more Say depth whatever you and want. we're gonna we're gonna spoil <laughs> things, and I think yeah. that 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 was a really interesting way to do it and I really liked that structure because then if you haven't read it and you do care about spoilers you can still listen to that portion. you know that portion yeah and then go and back it was actually and do her later. who suggested this yeah I like who, that idea a lot who, when I first said like should we be spoiler free and she was like well why don't you just do where I do where you're you can be spoiler free but you can still discuss the spoiler stuff too you just separate it a little bit and I think it's a slightly so, different scenario with you when you're doing such an in-depth review and you're doing chapter by chapter. Because it's so hard not to compare it to stuff that happens later. Right, to ha- that happens later. But you also have, like, enough content in one episode without getting into spoilers that you can yeah. get away with it. Um, whereas if you were trying to discuss this entire book in one podcast episode without giving away spoilers, like... How? Right. Like, that would be almost impossible. But <laughs> How even? But, yeah. So, so you you wanted to know. There's the answer. This line about Cinder's half-synthetic heart is my favorite. I, like, bold. literally, as I was reading over the chapters to prep for recording this, I got to 85 and it started. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Is this the chapter with the synthetic heart line? Do I get to put that down as my favorite quote? I was so excited. <laughs> And then I was like that terrified. Really well. I was terrified that it wouldn't be. I was terrified that it would be like the next chapter. So I was like literally it flipping ahead. It almost wasn't. Remember, I, I, know. I was like looking around at my chapters, and I was like, "Why did I have it separated like this? This is because when we get to this part, there's so much going on that instead of being like, okay, I'm going to do these chapters and these chapters and these, instead of splitting everything and just like every episode is two chapters, I'm like, some of these episodes are going to have to be more because this is all one scene, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, but I was terrified that I, that I would miss it. And then I got to the page and I was like, yes, I do get to talk about my heart is half synthetic. So it'll probably give her indigestion. I love it so much. Yeah, It's the kind of sass um, I dream of for my own characters. <laughs> like, I wish I could be love half it. so pithy in real life. <laughs> You're not half the cyborg cinder is. <laughs> oh, I'm not half the cyborg cinder is. Like I think of I think of marvelous comebacks like this like 20 minutes after a conversation. They do not come in the moment. Yeah, it'll be like the next day in the shower. I'm like, damn it. Like if somebody if somebody came and snarled in my face like my queen will eat your heart with salt and pepper, I'd be like, oh my God. I'd be like so taken aback <laughs> by the violence of that statement that I wouldn't be able to say anything. And Cinder's just like, dude, I don't have time for you. I want to talk about the violence of that statement. What is with the Lunars and all this, like, 
eating. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're constantly making commentary about, like, well, I don't like you, so I'm going to eat you, or I will taste your blood and flesh. And it's like, it's so why weird. is it all about consumption? Like, murder is one thing, but, like, why are we talking about the consumption of the carnage? Like, I don't... I want to know where Marissa got that concept and why she decided to roll with it. I mean, in in one way, I do understand it a lot for this culture in this book specifically, because if you call back to the original fairy tale, you call back to the Snow White fairy tale. Yes. Okay, you yes, have yes, yes, yes. Okay. the evil queen, you have Snow White's stepmother ordering that her stepdaughter's heart be cut out and brought to her so she can eat it. So she can eat it. Like okay. that's coming out of the original Grimm. And it is one of those details that a lot of the times will get kind of sanitized down because ugh. like a lot of them will kind of adapt it to be like, Oh, she wants the heart just to prove that she's dead. But like there is a version of the no, story she where she wants the it. heart to eat it. Okay. And so I think kind of incorporating that into like lunar, culture a little bit at, like not necessarily as a thing that they actually do but as like a valid threat that gets made is it is a really fascinating little callback to the story to the fairy tale yeah and i wasn't even thinking of snow white because um she's the cinderella character so i don't think i put those two together so that's a very good point that you brought up see this is why you're good <laughs> one of the many reasons also that word choice Sanitize, love it. Okay, so <laughs> Cinder tells Kenny to protect Kai with her life, and he salutes her, which is beautiful. He knocks out the other guy before he can shoot Aiko, and Kenny and Aiko have this really like fun back and forth of like, oh, I, I should go with her. Um, well, she's my bestie, and I don't get to go either. So you're just gonna have to chill for a minute, which I love, love, love Aiko in that moment. They get into the room and it's completely empty except for the Lunars who decided to stay behind because they were too afraid to upset Lavana. As it turns out, Kai was able to convince some of them and the Earthens to leave the room and they uh, fleed to the to the docks or whatever. So we get a very cute and brief reunion where Aiko meets Kai and he hugs her, but immediately he goes, what about Cinder? Which I love. And then... We help the Lunars and the Earthens, and then their plan is to go help Cinder. So that there's a lot that happens in this chapter, but it's also kind of like this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene. It's just mm-hmm. moving the story along. I absolutely love when Kai is like, I go, how's my girl? Yeah, no, it's a beautiful little moment. And I also, I love the really subtle, like, slight unreliability of Iko's narration. Because we're seeing her, we're seeing her, her interpretation of things that are happening that may or may not necessarily right. actually be happening. Because um, there's a line about like Kinney was sneering contemptuously at Kai's hand on Iko's broken arm, and it's like I don't necessarily Is know. Is she a reliable narrator? Right. In that moment? I don't know yeah. that that he was. I think he was probably surprised because not only is Kai another human now also treating this android like a living person that he cares about, but it's also the emperor of the commonwealth. Right. And it's one thing to see Cinder do it, who's cyborg, so you could make the assumption that, like, they have that connection, whereas Kai is, like you said, he's human. 
And so I think that that's probably more what's going through Kenny's mind than any sort of like, ugh, why would he touch an android? But I love seeing that right. that's Echo's interpretation because she has already decided she doesn't like Kenny. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I really like, it kind of reminds me of the scene with Cress a couple chapters ago when Cress and Kai got reunited and he hugs her and it's like, oh, I'm so glad you're okay. My girlfriend? I Has anybody seen my girlfriend? <laughs> Can somebody update me? <laughs> Can I tell you, though, I'm a little sad that I wasn't on for that chapter. I'm sad that I'm not Aww. on for, like, every chapter for, like, the entire rest of this book. Because I love the end of this book. But <laughs> we see so little of Kai and Cress interacting. Yeah. And I love that chapter and that interaction from them that he just immediately, like, springs into action with, like, what do you need? How can I help you? And he's just, like, instantly on her side doing whatever she needs and like being, and it's another chapter where Torin does. Yeah, where Torin's great. Love Torin. Yeah, we stand him. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, I just I love Kai. Kai is phenomenal, and I love how down to earth he is, and how like he cares more about a person's character than their status, and that really right. shows not just in like verbalizing it, but in like how he treats the people around him. Right. But actually, that is where the, the chapter ends. They're going to finish helping the Earthens and the Lunars escape, and then they're going to go find Cinder. So let's talk about your song choice for this one. So my song choice, I had a lot of trouble with this one, and I think it's because, like, my quote choice was so immediate. Like, I know exactly what it is. And then I was like, oh, song. Um, but I ended up going with The Road You Didn't Take from Follies. Um you take one road, you try one door. There isn't time for any more. One's life consists of either or. And I think that that's like Cinder's at this kind of precipice and this cross and she's there to find Kai and make sure he's safe and then go find Lavana. But she can't do both of those things. She has this moment where she has to choose. And then Kai has this moment where he has to choose. And he can either prioritize, like, getting the Earthens to safety or going after Cinder. And mm -hmm. so I think that that's this end bit, like, reaching the end of this battle is, like, this constant stream of choices that we're making about things that we are doing and things that we aren't doing. Cress had a similar experience last episode when she had to choose between telling, or not last episode, but a couple chapters ago with Kai, when she had to choose between you know, do I, when Kai says, can I help you? Like she had to choose between, do I further my cause with Cinder like I'm supposed to, or do I ask him to help me find Thorne because he was captured? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. I think that's like a repeating struggle throughout this, this end half of the series. Um, so my song was Disenchanted by My Chemical Romance. I love this song, first of all. Uh, mostly because like, I grew up as a millennial when a time where, like, we all thought we were, like, emo and misunderstood, and <laughs> I especially loved that kind of music and time frame, and my heart will forever live in that nostalgic bubble of my Camilla romance and Fall Out Boy, and so I was there on the day they sold the cause for the queen, and when the lights all went out, we watched our lives on the screen. I It was the roar of the crowd that gave my heartache to sing but it was a lie when they smiled and said, you won't feel a thing. Um, mostly I think that this song is a good reflection of Cinder's 
future journey where she's going to go after the queen. Not necessarily exactly what it happens in this chapter, but what we know this chapter is leading up to. Mm-hmm. And then I also think this is a good reveal of Keeney and how he's changed based on his perspective because this is the day when he's selling his cause for the queen. He has a new queen that he's willing to serve. And it's because the screen, the lights on the screen, revealed the the truth to him, among other things. Um, so let's talk about your quote for this one. Or I guess we already I mean, talked about it. we already quote. have in great <laughs> depth. I just love this moment so much. I Uh-oh. think I think what makes it is the description, unconcerned. Said Cinder, unconcerned. Yeah. Like, it doesn't even phase her. I adore right. it. I adore it. There's not much more to say. It's, but it's, it's one of my like top five quotes from the entire series. I should make a bookmark with that one. <laughs> so my quote was page seven eighteen. If you're loyal to me, then you'll be loyal to the Earth and Emperor. Protect him with your life. Obviously, she wants him protected because he's the Earth and Emperor. But like, my heart is just like, yeah, protect my boyfriend. Absolutely. I can just see. I can just see Kenny getting to. Um, Getting to Kai and being like, I was told by Cinder to protect you. And and Kai being like, what exactly did she say? Like, what were her exact words? (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, like... (laughs) I feel like both of them in this scene, like, they know that there are more important things going on, but they do also take (laughs) take the opportunity to be like, do they say anything about me? Do they like give you a message for me? It reminds me of when Thorne and Kai are in the ship on their way back to Earth. Um, after Kai is kidnapped, he's on his way to, to drop him off on Earth. And Kai is, like, poking the bear about Cress and whether or not, like, he has a crush on Cress. And Thorne, like, calls Cinder Kai's girlfriend. And Kai is like, yeah, my girlfriend. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't know why, but it just... I light up so much with all this boyfriend girlfriend behind the scenes when they have a war to deal with. It's it's one of my favorite tropes when like you're discussing something that's very important and there's an offhand reference to like somebody that you have feelings for but you're not a fully defined whatever and like what you latch into is not the important thing that's being discussed. It's this like other little detail. Um there's a moment from Once Upon a Time the TV series with that's similar between between Hook and Henry when they're talking about like why Henry doesn't like Hook, and Henry says something about like now that you and my mom are together, and Hook immediately disregards the serious conversation. Is like, did she use that word? Did she say together? Was that her language? <laughs> <laughs> and I just I I don't know why, but it just like I love it every single time. It's like we have really important things that we need to focus on right now, but also. Did they say that they like me like me or just that they liked me? <laughs> I love it. It makes me really happy, too, because, like, it's this is a very different context. But there's a, a scene in a Friends episode where one of Phoebe's boyfriends, like, um, he, which is played by Michael Rapport, and is one of my favorite boyfriends that she has on the show, but that's my own problem. But there's a scene where he's, like, mid-conversation and she walks in. And he's like, hold on a second to who he's talking to. And he kisses her and he's like, hi. And she's like, hi. He's like, okay, you can go back. Go ahead and keep talking. And it's, I just love it, this concept of like, okay, I know that there's more important things in the world, but right in this one second moment, I won't let there be. You know? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so 
Oh man, I feel like we've talked for hours. Well, that's because I mean, I guess we, we have, have, right? Like I called you, <laughs> right? Like I called you at ten thirty, and it's now one thirty. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so this chapter, there was one Easter egg. The bonus word hair appeared four times, and the bonus word scars appeared three times. Next time, we are going to cover winter chapters 86 through 89. Uh, Cassie, where can people find you on social media if they would like to do so? If you would like to find just me specifically, I am on Instagram as Cassie Directs. And if you want to find the Of Slippers and Spindles podcast, which is not currently active, but all of our backlog episodes are still available. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts by searching of slippers and spindles. And we also have an Instagram of slippers and spindles and a Facebook group. And we have fun on the Facebook group. group. Yeah. (laughs) I forget about the Facebook group sometimes too. And I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Every once in a while people will post things and I'll be like, right, right. Yes. That's still a thing. Um, We also technically have a Patreon. It's inactive at the moment. Um, just because of everything, and I don't know what the future of that's going to be, but it does still exist. But, like, I'm not collecting payment from anybody over there. But there is still a community of people over there, but there's also a slightly more active community over on the Facebook group. So. There will be links for Cassie and of Slippers and Spindles, as well as our featured fan artist in the show notes to this episode. You can follow the podcast on Instagram, Please rate, review, and subscribe if you want to continue to support the podcast. You can also check out the Patreon. And that's it. Thank you so much, Cassie. Three hours with me. I'm so glad that you didn't mind. Listen, I'll I'll vent librarian talk any day. You say that, but when I start texting you like crazy, you're going to be like, girl, this is not what I meant. I'm just going to pass you off to Bailey. That's fine. I She's kind of my idol and I haven't even met her yet. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for being here today. Keep reading, keep listening, and until next time, don't get glamour. Bye. Bye, friends. The chapters discussed today are from Winter by Marissa Meyer. This podcast is hosted and produced by Bethany Finger, and today's special guest was Cassie from the Slippers and Spindles podcast. The intro-outro music was composed by Emma Pavo, and the logo art was created by Sunlit Tangles on Instagram. Thank you for listening.